Do you guys remember when I used to be able to do flight nurses and respiratory therapists? I was interviewing them and I was trying to make like a whole series of different things that happen in the hospital, different specialties. Well, I decided to bring it back, at least for this episode, with one of my friends. And I hope you guys enjoy it. I hope you guys are staying safe. And here we go. So I used to have in my head when I first started this podcast, I said, I'm going to have these episodes where I talk to other specialties or people who do other things within nursing or even just within the hospital. And I kind of strayed away from that in terms of straying away from my own podcast since COVID happened. But I put the seed, I guess, out to my guest today a few years ago. (laughs) And we finally were able to circle back and link up and do this. So I appreciate her taking time out of her day to talk to me about not only a specialty that I really don't know anything about, um, just to be completely transparent. Well, I know one thing about it, and it's Clamp Clamp Snip. But I I also, we were like, just talking a little bit off mic, let's, you know, we can make it into a COVID venting session if we have to. <laughs> it's healing in a way. But without any further ado, my very special guest, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, uh, my name is Sybil, and Kim and I went to nursing school together. Goodness, it's been almost 10 years since we graduated. Don't age us like that. <laughs> I was like, we're getting old, Kim. <laughs> we're not, but go Sun Devils for anybody out there who's, yeah. uh, who's into that. So that is our alma mater is Arizona State University. Yeah, that feels like a lifetime ago. Oh, those pictures pop up, and I'm always like, oh, wow. They I straightened my so hair. Happy. <laughs> they make me so happy. Oh, we were so, we were such babes, such baby nurses. It was such a good group. I feel like we had such a great cohort because we always did stuff outside of nursing school together too. We all keep in touch to an extent too, clearly. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, here we are in totally different states 10 years later. (laughs) Exactly. But honestly, yes. Okay. So I'm going to do this quick aside for any new nurses, new grad nurses, like I'm sure you guys have been forged through your shared experiences in general, but especially going through COVID clinicals, I I can't imagine what you guys have had to do. So definitely cling to those people that you, that you had in nursing school, because those friendships, they, they last. Every time I come back out to Arizona, I end up hanging out with people from our class. They are my family in a way, you know, that's our nursing school family. That is my family. So it's like, I check in with my family and then my work, you know, my, my nursing school family. So it's awesome, actually, to keep those friendships like 10 years later. I agree. So just like on a quick, so my husband is also a nurse. And so when we moved out to Wisconsin, it was so he could go to nursing school. And like his nursing school buddies were like the first and only friends we had because <laughs> they, because they spent so much time together that like you have to be friends with each other. And so now like I'm going to be, it's funny, it was a girl he went to nursing school with, but I'm going to be a bridesmaid in her wedding because they do, they, they just become your family. <laughs> this is so true, though. I mean, it's the great thing about going through a shared experience, especially within nursing school. Shared uh, trauma. <laughs> yeah, I feel like everything that went bad happened during nursing school to, you name it in our class, I feel like. But we all were there for each other, which was awesome. But yes, so Sybil and I went to the nursing school together. We graduated the same class, all that good stuff. And then kind of went separate ways, clearly, in terms of, uh, well, I, I shouldn't say clearly, I should say physically, geographically, went separate ways, because <laughs> you ended up moving to Wisconsin shortly thereafter, right? Yeah. Well, 
three years later. So yeah, well, man, I guess, yeah. So yeah, shortly after. Shortly-ish thereafter, I guess, when you start looking back on how long you've been doing stuff. But whereas I gravitated towards the ER, Sybil is in a world I don't know about, the world of L&D. And I figured I'd grab a a definition for the people who listen to this, who I I, I know I have a few people who are international, so I know it's probably called something different um, in different places, but we're talking about labor and delivery nurses. It's easier just to call you guys (laughs) L&D. And on the one definition I got, this is literally like a job description, so you'll have to tell me how accurate it is. So LND nurses provide care and support for women before, during, and after the delivery of the baby. They are responsible for making sure that the medical as well as emotional needs of the patient are adequately met throughout the entire birthing process. I would agree with that. Where I will add on though, so it was it was a big world for me when I started moving out to the East, or Midwest rather. So a lot of hospitals out here in Wisconsin are what we call LDRPs. So that stands for labor, delivery, recovery, and postpartum. Um, whereas the hospital I worked at back in Phoenix, it was so big. We did like 6,000 deliveries a year. So we had our units broken up. So there was an antepartum unit where you're taking care of people who need kind of like long-term hospital care while they're still pregnant. And then obviously the delivery portion where you know babies come out, yay. And then postpartum where you're taking care of them afterwards and helping teach them how to take care of their newborns and everything. So when I first started my career, I strictly did labor delivery recovery. So that's, you know, getting them through the labor process, delivering the baby, and then the first two hours afterwards. After that, I didn't know anything else. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, you're like two hours, one minute, I'm out, guys. Exactly. Like I didn't have to worry about like helping with breastfeeding or learning anything about newborn screens or like the different tests that we do. I was like, peace out. I always considered myself more of a mom nurse than a baby nurse. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I could I, I could see that too. Yeah, I'm like, no, I everyone's like, but you do labor and delivery. And I'm like, yes, delivery. After Once that, delivery's I, done. <laughs> I don't want anything to do with the baby. <laughs> and I still kind of feel that way, just because uh it's it's scary taking care of kids. I'm sure you feel the same way in the emergency department. It's not like the kids themselves, it's dealing with the parents. It's that it's like in in the ER too, I mean, when they're coming in, it's it's one it's it's one extreme or the other. It's either we can do this in terms of, we just need to give you reassurance. We need to just make sure everything is all good. And, you know, having a, this is truly just a fussy baby or a fever, or it's really, really sick, really critical, really bad trauma that like is horrific in any sense, but especially when it's on a very, very tiny person, a very tiny body, a newborn. So yeah, it's, it's one of those two extremes in the ER. And, and I, I'm glad that, you know, I don't see it frequently or constantly because of just sometimes where I end up in certain regions or the hospitals I work at, but I can't do what you do. <laughs> so, oh. Well, I can't do what you do. <laughs> so here's my question though. Like, how did you know that's something you wanted to do? Because if you're like me, which I, I know we kind of, everybody in our nursing school class kind of had their own different way of figuring out their specialty, I feel like. And I didn't know necessarily I wanted to be ER nursing while I was in nursing school. I just knew that it was something I gravitated towards and I was going to just figure out if that was where I need to really wanted to be. But there were some people who were like, I want to work with kids. And I was like, awesome. You, you are a special sort. (laughs) Or there were some people who said, I want to do mother baby. I want to do labor and delivery, that sort of stuff. So 
were you always into that mindset or did it kind of like, how did that come to be? Because when people hear I'm ER nurse and then they meet me, they're like, that makes sense. And I mean, it makes sense to me for you to be L and D, but how do you, how did you figure it out? So I, I was always labor and delivery. That's what I knew I wanted to do. So weirdly enough, I always thought I was going to be a teacher. I think that's just because it was really the only career I was exposed to as a kid since my entire family is teachers. So that was the path I was down. And then my senior year of high school, I had a free day. So we did block scheduling and my parents wouldn't let me graduate early because I was young and they were like, no, we don't trust you to be off on your own. So I had to fill my schedule with something. And we had this really great program called Career Practicum at my high school where you got to job shadow on different units, like not just hospital, but like all kinds of things. So I initially actually started out at a law firm on the military base, kind of job shadowing there. And I randomly got put on a labor and delivery floor. And the first day I was there, I got to see a C-section with twins be done. And like my whole trajectory, like career trajectory changed that day because I was like, this is what I need to do. And I remember going home and telling my mom like, Hey, I'm going to be a nurse now instead of a teacher. And she was like, what? Like you were never, I was never exposed to the hospital as a kid. And she's like, you know, there's like blood and bodily fluids. And like, how are you going to handle this? But I just, I watched that and I knew it was what I needed to do. Yeah. I I would have been just traumatized by that. No, (laughs) no, yes and no. Okay. So when we got to like our OB rotation, Number one, we had a cool instructor. Yes. Like for the for the actual like education part, she was awesome. And she actually made me like not feel so afraid of going into that atmosphere <laughs> because I knew a few things right off the bat in nursing school. Uh I was not gonna like pediatrics and I was gonna struggle with our OB portion. Actually, that was I it's a testament to just good teachers who actually teach based off of experience and can do a good job of integrating that into what you need to know because she was awesome. And then actually going through that rotation wasn't horrible. Was it? <laughs> I still knew at the end of it, I don't want to do that. Like, it's not for me. <laughs> it's not for me. It's a no for me, dog. But it, it was definitely interesting. I got to, you know, I got to see a C-section, I think on my first day at one of the units. And that was pretty cool because they actually involved us as student nurses with at least like doing some stuff, which made you actually feel better than just hanging onto the wall like you do for most of your clinicals. Those days where you get to like put a Foley in that were so exciting. <laughs> oh, and you got to brag about it at your uh, little post-clinical Huddle conference. Yeah, 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 exactly. You're like, I got to put a Foley in. And now we're on like the other side of things where, you know, you you tell the student, well, not tell them, but you ask them like, hey, I got a patient that needs an IV. Do you want to try? Yep. And they're like, like, oh, my God, do you want to give an insulin injection? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, it's so cool to be able to do that. And in a way, you know, you've got a full circle moment where you're still a teacher. Oh, I love teaching. Yeah, especially with L&D, I feel like, because there's a lot of things that go into that. So, okay, so we've kind of talked about like the little seed that got planted. So you get that, you go through nursing school. We're all proud Sun Devils. Get through the NCLEX, get the RN. Did you have like the externship sort of thing or did you have to kind of work a little bit on networking? Our senior year, so that last semester, I got an externship at on a med surge unit, actually. They were technically considered trauma med surge, but it was a lot of like orthopedic gastrointestinal. And I lucked out getting an externship there. And even though they really weren't like hiring at the time, when we graduated, they were kind of like, 
you know, Arizona, big snowbird state. Um, they're like, you know, by the time that you are getting off of orientation, like our, our census is going to be up and we think it would be okay to hire you. So I was really, really lucky that I got a job right away, but it was in med surge. And I definitely might've lied a little bit and said that like, oh, this is what I want to do. <laughs> Just to like flatter people. Because <laughs> I really wanted a job. It was hard. Know, really it was hard. Like considering that we had our bachelor's degrees even, And that was before like the bigger push to get the BSN like it is now. Yeah. Like I remember quite a bit of our cohort struggling and like not even for lack of being picky, like even nursing homes were hard to get hired at as a new grad just because they wanted people with experience. It took me about five or six months to get... uh, Did it really? To get a job offer that I actually wanted to do because... I I was applying to different places and realistically like going through it with, you know, my family about I might have to move. How far would I be okay with moving? I got a job offer from this place in Iowa, but everything with like everything that had gone on in in my family's life was so fresh in some ways that I was like, I I don't want to move that far right now. So that kind of narrowed it down to, okay, I want to stay in Arizona. How far in Arizona am I willing to move? And then I finally got the new grad to ER program and it was in Yuma. So, Oh, you got into your specialty though. Yeah. So I kind of, me holding out made it so that I I got to transition. So I don't know if I've, I feel like I've talked about it on my podcast, but basically how my stuff was set up was that it was a nurse residency program. So you had, you know, your education, like three days or three days or whatever out of the week. And then you had your precepted shifts that you were working. So it was usually, maybe it was two days of classes. And then, you know, you had your shifts during the week. And the way ours was set up at the time was that you spent the month like in med surge, a month in like ortho, a month in ICU, and then a month in peds. And then you can choose to, there was a, they also kind of chose at that time, do you want to do, do you still want to do ER? Like at every point you would check in, with the educator and they'd be like, do you still want to go to the ER? And if at any point you said, you know what, I really like ortho or I really like peds, the hospital was like, okay, well then we'll train you there. Like if you wanted to kind of go that route, they needed people. And if you wanted to go that way, then they would be willing to train you and take you then. So I eventually made it through all that. And then they transitioned me into the ER and that's where, you know, I've stayed pretty much since then. But it was cool because I have like a little bit of experience with med surge, which has come in handy in light of COVID. And then, you know, having that starting base of time management. So I, I have major respect for med surge nurses because that's something that I probably take for granted in terms of being able to not have to have those ratios per se all the time. But I just, you know, and more credit to them because I know that they've been asked to do a lot in the last year and a half, especially. I will jump on and agree with that. So even though it was not where I wanted to be, like, you know, all through nursing school, they say, you know, that med surge is such good experience for you. And I kept thinking like, how is this going to help me with like labor and delivery? Yeah, for Um, real. But it, it made such a huge significant difference because when I did finally start in labor and delivery and there were a couple of like new grads who got into the specialty right away and didn't have any prior nursing experience it was so much easier for me to transition, even though it was a different type of patient care. And like the critical thinking component and prioritization and time management was like way ahead of that. So it was a lot easier for me to transition, even though like I didn't want to. (laughs) So I give huge credit to med surge nurses. 
And if you're starting out in that, that's all you can get. Like, don't think that that's it. You know, like if you're listening to this and you're kind of stuck in a med surge unit in terms of, you know, that that's not where your heart is, just ride it out. You know, if you, if you need to, cause I know sometimes people are contractually bound to, <laughs> to, to, to have to work a few, few years in, in certain units, but it really will lay that foundation. So you know, take as much of that knowledge as you can in between maybe not wanting to be there, but, you know, still work hard within it because that's, that framework is going to help you so much down the line. So that's my, my word of advice to any new grad people listening out there who are like, I want to go to the ER, but I'm stuck in med surge, or I want to do L and D, but I'm stuck in med surge. Learn from med surge, just learn from it and keep applying. And, you know, once you get that experience and knowledge base, especially after a year, you'll be flying. Like, don't worry about it. That was all I did. I only did a year of med surge and basically like just kept knocking down the door of the labor and delivery and was like, what can I do to get my resume looked at? And, you know, persistence pays off. But also then I had a year of experience under my belt already by the time I applied. (laughs) Absolutely. I was lucky in what my program did in terms of my residency. Um, But after my year in Yuma, I was able to go and work in another hospital and I stayed there for two years. So by the time I left to go traveling, I had a pretty good three years of uh, just nursing in general with a bulk of that being ER. And I mean, it's the sky's the limit at that point. So you end up, you know, eventually in L and D and like, what is that like shifting from working with, you know, mostly adult patients, older patients to now mothers and babies? It was, a very huge shift. So labor and delivery is interesting in the fact that like, for the most part, you're dealing with primarily healthy people. Whereas I feel like any other part of the hospital, it's like a problem and we're trying to fix that and trying to get them better, whether it's like a surgery or, you know, they're just there for antibiotics. Like that's, that's, we have a a goal there. Whereas like here, it's like, we're trying to get you to have a baby. (laughs) Like it, you know, it's not like a medical problem. So it was an interesting shift that way. And like just a lot more emotional support, uh, which is what I think drew me to it. I I really like being able to be there and be supportive and like helping set them up for success when they're at home, whether it's like giving community resources and stuff like that. So it's it's a, being a different kind of nurse. I know we're caring in like every type of field that we do, every specialty, but it's, it's a different kind of caring in a way. I don't know. <laughs> I feel like, so one of the contracts I was at was a critical access hospital. And so a lot of their nurses cross-trained over to doing L&D because that's all you have. Um, It's just one of those small hospitals where everybody did everything. And my role as a traveler was that I could flex between med surge and the ER roles so that I could cover for the labor delivery nurses who were certified to work over on that side. And so I really didn't go there, but you know, if I needed to, obviously I would help out as long as somebody told me what to do, but you know, just the way that they approach things with those patients in terms of explaining at every step, you know, this is what we're doing. This is why we're doing it. I feel like it's a lot different style than some of the other specialties that are out there where you can somewhat assume that your patient has an understanding of what you're saying. But with L&D, it's kind of like, all right, this might be a whole new world for a new mom. So everything you're doing, 
you can't just assume that they know or that they read or they saw, uh, you know, something before coming in that the reason why we're doing this is because of this. And I feel like you probably get to know your patients a lot better because for some of them, you're there for a while in terms of watching the monitors. And that part, you know, I remember some of the people who were coming in and were in, you know, active labor and everything, you you sat on them for a while. So if you were their nurse, it was 12 hours of getting to know somebody and really, really getting to know them and kind of seeing their family dynamic and seeing, you know, their support person or whatever and how they're going to maybe be able to function in this new role. So I only saw like the, the surface level of it. So I, I imagine you've seen a lot of things and in terms of like, I don't know. Uh, I don't necessarily know where I'm going with this. No, I, I get what you're saying. It's actually like, it is interesting because all of that, like actually getting to know your patient and their story and like what support system is actually all kind of part of your assessment tool too. But it's like in a sneaky way of like, hey, I'm just I'm just getting to know you. But you do get to know them on a really personal level. And I, I think in some ways, I, I probably share more about my personal life than like the average nurse would with a regular patient. But it, it acts as a source of comfort for them because they're coming to us at a very like vulnerable time in their lives. You know, we're, we're seeing everything, we're hearing everything, everything's laid out for us. And that's like really intimidating, especially for first time moms. You know, they have so much anxiety going in like, oh my goodness, like my birth plan. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's, there's that, but like uh, even like weird stuff, you know, like most people, I, I know like being in the ER too, like I am not phased by body parts anymore. And I have to like remind myself that most people are a little bit more modest. Then I maybe uh, am it's now. the worst. It's the worst. Just real quick, as a single nurse, to I don't know before COVID, you know, going out on dates and stuff, and I would just freely talk about bowel movements and yeah. I mean, that's how I gauge a conversation, anyways. If you can't hang with that, then this isn't going to go anywhere. But I mean, it's, it's stuff like that, you know. You're just like it's just a body. Like my husband becoming a nurse was the greatest thing for our marriage. <laughs> I'm like, oh, we can talk about pooping now and I don't have to like keep it quiet. <laughs> right. Or you could just be like, listen, this looks weird and like completely like, you know, look, look at my boob or something like that. You know, I've seen, I've seen, I've had a lot of pictures in my, my inbox from a lot of my friends who are non-medical and I don't care. Like, honestly, I'm just like, it's a body. Like, send me a picture. What are you worried about? And they're like, are you sure? I'm like, Yes. Like, I don't care. Yes, I know we're friends, but at the same time, like, you're my friend. That's why I'm like, you can send it. It's okay. And that's how I feel. So, like, you know, everybody comes in with those, like, concerns about staying covered up and, you know, am I going to poop when I'm pushing the baby out? And I'm like, I was about to ask, I was like, how many times do you have to (laughs) answer that question about, like, let's think about how things work when you're pushing? (laughs) I am very discreet. But, you you learn to read your rooms and like certain rooms that you you can like joke with and like me I mean we all know how babies get there so like you can sometimes make some some jokes that would maybe cross the line in like other areas of the hospital but I always tell them I'm like if you have that fear at all of like of of wondering if you're going to poop I'm like let go of it now because it's going to make you push so much longer like let go of those fears just give into it I will know. It's always the dads who ruin it. I'm very discreet, but the dads are the ones who give it away. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. I had this dad once who like, 
was just like dry heaving while he was holding his wife's hands. And I'm like, dude, hold it together. Like, I'm actually like down here, right in my face. Like, you can hold it together for your wife right now. It's, it's, yeah. I mean, <laughs> you're like either like don't hold her hand or like take a moment because she needs you and you're not there. Um, I stepped him around the side of the room, like in between pushing, and I gave him some peppermint oil to put underneath his nostrils. And I was like, you can't do this because you're making her feel bad. <laughs> it's not about you right now, dude. It's not. So my big thing is like, how do you not freak out with having a patient that you can't see? Like for, you know, having a baby on, you know, Toco and stuff, that only gives you a small snapshot of what's going on. And I just, I don't like that part, I guess, about when, when we take care of pregnant women in general, you know, in the ER, it's kind of like, you have all the thinking that I'm like, okay, everything that could go wrong, you know, that I learn in, in TNCC or uh, ACLS and stuff like that. I'm just like, okay, wait, this is going to be okay though, right? <laughs> like, I just don't want to turn people to their left side. <laughs> <laughs> just hang out on your, no, that's fair. I feel like it's healthy to still freak out. I mean, I do. I realize that it's not as bad as I used to because whenever I'm training new nurses and the things that are like giving them anxiety, I'm like, dude, you're chill. It's fine. Like, what are you stressing out about? But I, I always still have a little healthy dose of fear because you can have all of the medical records in the world. You could have that continuous tracing the entire time and you can still get caught with a surprise once that baby arrives. So I don't know. My practice has changed a lot over the years. I think that's one of my favorite things about doing travel nursing is like you learn to adapt to every facility's kind of style of how they do things. Like the job is the same at the end of the day. But like, I remember when I started, I was at a high risk facility. So I was like obsessed with that continuous tracing and being able to see everything that was going on and having the resources there that like, if a baby was crashing, we could have that kiddo out in five minutes. So now being at hospitals where like intermittent monitoring is like a really big thing. And oh, like if your doctor isn't there, like it could be another 35 minutes before they get there. So I, I don't know. I, I always still have a healthy dose of fear because you're dealing with somebody's tiny human and that, that oftentimes means more to them than their own lives do. So I think it's like a normal healthy dose of fear that, that that's there, but you just learn, you just learn to kind of like keep your composure in front of other people instead of letting it be read on your face. I'm sure it's very similar in the emergency department. <laughs> You're like, it's bad, but I can't let you know it's bad because then it's going to get worse. <laughs> exactly. You know, when when you have, and now getting used to having visitors back in the room, you know, when you have people that the monitors are going off and they're saying, is, the, is this okay? Like, what's going on? And even if something is going on, you have to kind of do the whole, we're giving the medicine, we're giving fluids, you know, just like explaining like, this is why we're doing this and being totally even keeled. Meanwhile, inside you're like, if you don't respond to this, then I got to do other stuff. So, (laughs) you know, you're like three steps ahead in your head and, and getting in touch with, you know, your provider and everything. That's also just, so that was interesting working critical access, which, oh, if you guys didn't catch that, Sybil's also a travel nurse with L&D. So if you have travel nurse questions, you can email me and I'll ask her. It's and all good. them to me. Yeah. Yeah. Me it's all good. <laughs> but working at that critical access hospital with those nurses, I swear to you that some of these nurses, and I'm pretty sure it has happened, have like delivered, like helped with facilitating the delivery before the doctor even has a chance to show up. Oh, I've done that plenty of times. It's my nightmare. I don't want to catch a baby. This is oh, the ER goodness. nightmare. <laughs> this is literally my nightmare is being caught 
out in a parking lot, assisting a woman to a wheelchair and then having to literally catch them. And my voice, Sarah doesn't work out there. And I'm just like, hello. <laughs> my dream is like the day I get to deliver a baby in Target. I'm like waiting for the day to put those skills to use. <laughs> we have very different <laughs> dreams of nightmares going on here <laughs> in this podcast right now. I'm just like, I know what I would want, you know, what to do, but it's just so, to me, I don't see it enough that I'd be like, uh, hang on, that part of my brain needs to be activated real quick. But that's, so I, as part of being labor and delivery, just because we also do like C-section, so we're doing surgical recovery, um, most places actually required me to have my ACLS certification as well. And every two years when I go to renew that, I have like huge panic anxiety attacks because that's not something I'm regularly using. I mean, not that I'm regularly delivering babies on my own without a doctor, but like that is more comfortable to me than like an ACLS algorithm. (laughs) I mean, it it makes sense, you know, in terms of specialty wise, like once you, you know, start to like hit your stride in a specialty, then you got to do your research. You're like, oh God, I hope this never happens to me. Oh yeah. Well, and you know, a lot of patients are always asking me, like, if I have kids, I think they just want that, like, reassurance that, okay, you've been through this hell as well, too. And I feel like I lose a little bit of street cred when I tell them I don't have kids. But like, I have, you know, almost nine years of experience in my specialty. And so then they're like, oh, well, you must have seen everything. And I'm like, no, I haven't. And I hope I never do. Because there's a lot of other stuff that I I really hope I never have to be exposed to. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I guess kind of turning into like the downer part ish is like, there's, there's gotta be frustrating parts and tragic parts about working L and D. I mean, I've, I've worked at enough hospitals now where they tell us, you know, on our orientation about the codes there. And most of the hospitals have pretty universal codes, but you know, you hear like a code light blue overhead and that like strikes fear into everybody's heart. And I mean, for people who don't know some places, their code blues, it generally means that, you know, it's an adult that's had some sort of event where their heart stopped or they stopped breathing, whatever, um, and they need help with that. But some places they call it a code light blue when there's actual an assist that's needed more so in the land of labor and delivery. And it usually indicates that there's probably something wrong going on with the newborn. And literally, like, I'd, I've never seen people move faster to get to that room, to that unit than when that's called overhead. So, I, I mean... I don't know how you deal with those situations and kind of like still work the rest of your shift. I know it's bad enough in the ER when we're working codes and, and, you know, we, we, we don't resuscitate. We have to call, you know, a time of death and there's still nine more, nine more hours of your shift left. So that's hard enough. I I can't imagine the worst case scenario for me in my head and then still having to like continue to work and be present for people. That's for sure. I think one of the hardest things, like I always tell people that I work in a department that is primarily a happy place, like more days, way more days than not. Like I work in a very, very happy place, but we do have the hard stuff. Like maybe it's not even always like, like losing a baby, which obviously is horrifically tragic to deal with anywhere. I mean, I know you guys even deal with like the earlier losses a lot of times, like in the emergency department and like at any stage of a pregnancy, like it's, it's just, it's awful. But even other things like unexpected things, like we thought everything was going great. And now my baby's admitted to the NICU or my baby had to get transferred to another hospital. We thought everything was fine. And there's some sort of birth defect going on. It's really weird because you, you have to have that compassion and 
be grieving along with them at the same time, but then also trying to make things better. And then you might have to go into another room and be like completely happy, just like excited that they just had a baby. I don't think it's like acting because it's like, it's truly how I'm feeling for like each of those different couples at the time. But I almost feel like it's acting in a sense because I have to put on like a different face depending on which room I'm going into. So it's like a weird, weird juggle of emotions. I think in some ways I'm fortunate by by not having children because I know for my coworkers that do have children taking care of those patients, it hits them a lot harder. And it obviously like still is devastating to me. But I think in some ways, like I I have no idea what it's like to even imagine that kind of loss because I've I don't have children. Whereas I think when you do, like you imagine like what would it be like if your child wasn't there with you? And and I don't I don't know how people do that. Like I said, I think in some ways I'm lucky by by not knowing what that's like, but it's still definitely hard. I have taken care of a lot of wonderful patients over the years, but the unfortunate thing is it's it's the really sad ones. Those are the people that are going to stay with me for the rest of my life. Those are the ones that I still think about. I still think about their babies' names. Whereas like happy normal delivery, like they might see me out at the store and I'm like, I can't really remember you because it's unfortunately only the bad things that really stick with you. That's the rough part about uh, I think with healthcare, and I think that's been highlighted in this past year and a half with the with COVID, is just how much of the bad stuff sticks with you. I was talking to people when it first started. I was like, oh, I I just know this is going to devastate the healthcare pro- providers and professionals, and the whole entire front is that even after we get whatever sense of containment, whatever that looks like, even after that, the fallout from having to process however long, you know, now it's about a year and a half of it, of all the death in terms of, yes, there's the death of actually losing people, but also there's been loss in different ways for people. So, but within healthcare, especially, I I was talking to my dad actually about how, you know, I've been in the ER for close to that 10 years now. And this past year and a half is probably the most death I've seen in the ER and outside of, you know, working what I do. And it's so weird because, because of resources and because of everything going on with that patient or, you know, their condition, you're in this role of kind of dabbling into the world of, you know, comfort care and palliative care and hospice care in a way. Well, maybe not so much hospice, hospice, but more palliative care. And it's like, those are roles that I think a lot of people didn't envision themselves actually doing, but because of the pandemic and because of just how overwhelmed resources have become in certain places, you have to be that role. And it's been interesting because it's just like, you know, I look back on it and I'm just, well, not looking back, back, but I'm just like thinking, I'm just like, man, this past year is like, I have definitely seen more people pass away, but they're at least, you know, comfort care or palliative or, you know, we're, we're doing a lot of stuff to help to alleviate as much as we can, but it's just like, a, it's definitely trippy already. And then it's like, oh wait, we're still in it. <laughs> and meanwhile, you have like <laughs> TV shows that are using it as a plot point. And I'm like, no, we're still in it. Why, why are you doing this to me, Grace Anatomy? <laughs> no, I, I feel like it's been just an interesting year for nursing in general because I feel like a lot of people have had to step into roles that they that they didn't think that they were going to have to. So like talking about like COVID and pregnancy and like how the emergency department. Yeah. How's it changed it? How's it changed L&D? Because I've had a lot of my friends who've 
I, well, two things. I've had a lot of my friends who've given birth during COVID and, you know, they said that it's totally different, obviously, than their previous children that they've had, which, you know, is to be expected. But it's interesting seeing their pictures and everyone's wearing a mask in it. And you're like, oh, yeah, <laughs> joyous event. But, you know, we, we have to make sure our protocols are good. But also, I was telling you that when this first started, a lot of different departments kind of screeched to a halt, like elective surgery and and some other aspects, you know, of, of healthcare and everything. Like elective and they, stuff. And, yeah, yeah, and they got kind of... Off. <laughs> and then I know that L&D kind of took a hit for a while, too, because people were just... They didn't know what to do. You know what I mean? Like, people didn't want to come to the hospital if they really didn't need to. So I know that we saw an initial drop across the board. And... I remember joking with somebody that worked L&D and I was like, don't worry after the, you know, since everyone's in lockdown in nine months, it's your time to shine. And sure enough, I started noticing more people going into active labor, basically nine months to like the first, you know, lockdown, whatever. Like I was like, oh yeah, there we go. Basically. And since January, I feel like you guys have probably had a baby boom. (laughs) Um, yeah, so it's I'm on like a labor and delivery nurses page. And it's been interesting to kind of see just like different areas. So like some places saw like decreases. And I'm like, I don't know what you guys are talking about. There's been like huge upticks here. So yeah, I remember all of those memes coming out where it was like, okay, ER nurses and ICU, like now's your time and nine months, we're going to pass the torch to labor and delivery. So it's, it's just been interesting because like kind of laughing at you guys talking about like emergency department nurses, like their biggest fear is having to deliver a baby. That's pretty universal. You're not alone in that, Kim. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> um, like the amount of times, like I get a call and they're like, you're like, we're bringing her up. She's in labor. And I'm oh my like, gosh, that's me. That's me. I am calling you. Did you know that when I was in Washington, that was me calling you in Wisconsin saying, Hey, so What's going on? I have a woman that's pacing around down here that won't sit in the wheelchair. Can you come get her please? Yeah. And I was like, my fifth call that night. Did you know that? Because you guys said, hey, Kim, yeah, we'll be right down. And you clicked. So yeah, so it's been interesting because like, in some ways, I consider us like a unique specialty in that we're like our own miniature version of the hospital. Because like, we we do our own surgeries. We also like essentially do our own emergency department. Because like, let me tell you, as soon as they hear someone is like 20 plus weeks, they're like, I don't care. She's having a heart attack. She's pregnant. She's going up to labor and delivery. I mean, to an extent, hang on, wait, wait, I I want to tell this to some people, I will say this, we do, that is pretty true to a, pretty true, okay, because basically, and it depends hospital to hospital, but that's always like one of the first questions I ask the manager, I'm like, and what's your L&D cutoff? Oh, 20 weeks? Okay, good. And then sure enough, you get that patient, you're like, how far along are you? And they're like, 21 weeks, and you're like, ooh, you're going to have to get cleared by uh, L&D first before we can see you. Like I cut my hand. You're like, yeah, sorry. Got to get cleared. <laughs> no, not, not to that extent, but no. I mean, sometimes it is though. Like some of them come in at like 32 weeks or something. And you're like, you're here for nausea, vomiting. Do you really need us? Or do you want to go to them? Like, yeah. And I mean, you know, when you get pregnant patients who are in car accidents, sometimes we'll call you guys and be like, can you bring the monitors down here? Cause then we can at least like still do what we need to do for mom and then we could check on babe yeah that's just me maybe making a joke trust me i love my ear people because no, again I, I mean it is true <laughs> like if they're at 19 weeks you're like how many days you're like oh. six days it's about midnight if you come Every... and you check in in like 14 minutes we can send you to LD. 
every once in a while we'll get like just a vague, oh, I'm not for sure, but like she says around 20 weeks and then we like date her out and we're like, ah, 18, like not exactly. Or how about the ones where they come into us and they're like, my back hurts. And you're like, is there any possibility you might be pregnant? And they go, no. And then, and then two we hours end up later, calling you guys going, hey, so we have a woman in active labor right now. <laughs> she didn't know she was pregnant until our doctor put a little bit of a ultrasound, ultrasound on there on her. <laughs> and found a heartbeat. So we're thinking this is a you guy thing. <laughs> we're going to send her up. Is that all good? <laughs> Those are always really impressive to me. Oh, yeah. I always thought that that did not happen. And then when I started working in the ER and that happened for the first time, I went, oh, this is, oh, (laughs) yeah. It's those people that for, you know, a whole, there's a whole mountain of reasons why. But I mean, it's just always like blows my mind whenever I have to call L&D and be like, hey, so this patient looks like they're maybe full term. So they're in active labor. Nope, I have nothing in terms of anything else. We just told her she's pregnant. And you're like, yeah, it's one of those ones. Sorry, guys. I always laugh when people like get stressed out about like a baby that delivers in like the parking lot. I'm like, sweet, like my job's done already. Like now yeah, I just like true. take care delivered. of you. We're good. Baby's good. <laughs> All good. Yeah, no heart tones to chart. Those are the flyby deliveries are the greatest thing for us. I mean, that would be a lot of safe paperwork that you have to just be like, oh, they already came with the kid. <laughs> the, the baby's out already. We just got to do the screening. <laughs> <laughs> so no, um, is it, what were we? Oh, COVID. oh, with COVID. Yeah. So COVID has probably switched up a lot of stuff for you guys, I, I imagine. It's been interesting because like, I feel like a lot of units like, or hospitals in general, were kind of like, we're going to have a specific COVID unit. So that way, like all the COVID people are grouped together and we're not like spreading this any more than we need to. Well, especially in the earlier days too, where it was just like every single, like literally every 12 hours it changed. I was, I had block scheduling when this first started. So I would work like, you know, six days, six days on, eight days off. And I am not kidding you. If you're listening, I'm not exaggerating every 12 hours in terms of from when I went home and then came back 12 hours later completely different protocol there are new protocols yep. completely different in one time during our shift our charge nurse sprints in and is like take those masks off use these ones take those off use these ones and oh we're just my like gosh. okay like all right uh, i guess uh, whatever like That's whatever what we gotta do <laughs> yeah it's a lot of us going all right and i mean yeah so those first early months and so and like all the the ways that especially rural hospitals had to build their own units and use like different tents and everything to separate. It was, I mean, a lot of it, if you go by certain hospitals, you can still see a lot of stuff is still set up and it's kind of weird. Cause you're like, Oh, we don't necessarily need to do that right now, but it's almost like, but like, that's what they need to be able to do in case anything, you exactly. know, we go into an upswing again. They're like, we can't have to scramble like we did the first time around. No. And I mean, it was interesting to like see it happen in real time. So I imagine with L and D and stuff, you guys were in a whole different thing because I remember at one hospital I worked at the respiratory therapist was the only one for a while at that hospital. And so they were really concerned about having to do procedures with people who tested positive and then having to go to L and D. Yeah. So it was like this whole thing about, the safety of the one RT that was actually there because of just a few different things at the hospital, they ended up only having one RT coverage for like a few weeks. And 
I, I felt so bad that, you know, I, a lot of times in the ER, we, we wouldn't even, we would just be like, if it, if we have a positive thing, we'll handle it here. Like it's more important for you to be over there and not have to worry and be there for L and D. But yeah, it was crazy. Cause you're just like, these are the things that people didn't think about until they had to think about it. Like, who do we allow in the room? How do we screen this? Exactly. So take me through it. Well, and, well, and that was the weird thing is it's like, we can't just send a positive COVID pregnant mom to a COVID unit because it's like, they won't be able to deliver the baby, which is what we need to do. Oh yeah. How do you deal with that? We, well, so we were essentially doing all the same precautions, um, like the pappers, the N95s, the gown, the gloves, all of the things. And it was really interesting because like, we were still trying to put them in negative pressure rooms, but like, realistically, again, obstetrics is primarily healthy people. Like you're not dealing people with active tuberculosis or things like that. So like, we just didn't have units with these rooms equipped. So we had a lot of like weird back and forth where, you know, we do testing and oh my goodness, she's asymptomatically positive. And then we'd have to move her. But it's like, but then we're like taking her through the halls and and she's already been there for a while too sometimes. Exactly. And that's what we ran into in the ER is that we didn't have enough rooms at some points for people that triggered a potential positive or whatever. And it was just like, we literally don't have enough rooms for these people. Or you hear about their symptoms after you've already been in the room for whatever amount of time and they've been in not in a negative pressure room. Yeah, it was pandemonium. Well, and the weird thing was, is so many of our moms really truly were asymptomatically positive. I feel like for the few that were symptomatic, that and then that became like an odd thing actually needed kind of like ICU care. So then ICU nurses were having to step up and like taking so I remember different times where I would be down during my shift with a mom who was really sick. And it would be the ICU who was there taking care of mom. And I was there strictly for monitoring baby and like letting us know, like, are we still good? Or or do we really need to deliver this baby right now? So it was just a really, it's, I mean, it's still a really weird time. Because again, like, we, we can't just send them to a different unit. Because because we have to get them through the delivery. And then there was a lot of, you know, babies obviously have weaker immune systems. And it was like, do we let these babies stay with their moms that are COVID positive? Are any of those antibodies transferring through the placenta? Um, do we need to transfer them? Do we need to isolate them? And then, you know, how do we isolate these babies and make sure we're not like taking care of them around other babies? Because a lot of units typically have like a central nursery area where we kind of do newborn testing. So even if it's not necessarily like a NICU or anything like that, we would still have a nursery area to be doing these tests and procedures. And it was like, oh, we can't be bringing babies in from COVID positive rooms to the same area where we're doing these things with, you know, babies that haven't been exposed. So it's it's been a really weird time. And like in general, with a lot of stuff, there's a lot of things we don't know in regards to like kids and newborns, because who wants to test things on kids and newborns? I mean, I know we did. <laughs> I, was say, I, I had to do a, I've, oh, I've had a fish for boogers for COVID swaps on a few kiddos. And I think the youngest I've had was a two month old. Oh, I don't mean that kind of testing. I meant like, I'm like in general, like there's so many things that we don't know. Are they like safe for breastfeeding? Because it's like, well, I'm not going to like test this medication and see if it, you know, gives my kid a deformity. So in general with, with so much of this stuff, it's like, well, I'm not going to let my baby be the first one to like test this out kind of stuff. Oh no, we definitely stuck COVID swabs on babies' noses. Isn't that we horrible? Were, it's horrible. It's oh my gosh. It's so bad. <laughs> you know, I, 
I I saw somebody posted maybe a couple weeks ago about how they were seeing more really critically sick, like ICU pregnant patients recently in their area. What do you do in those situations? Like, you know, we're still using remdesivir, which has its own sort of thing that I could get on a soapbox about. But, you know, all the treatments and everything that we're doing don't necessarily, there's no algorithm is what I should say. There's no playbook for it. And because it's just so rapidly evolving and this is working this week and this might not be working next week, I don't know how they would be able to effectively weigh like, you know, benefits and risks and everything without just always having to think about long-term effects for mom and baby. Well, and that's where, like I was saying, like for, for a lot of these parents, what, why it terrifies me taking care of babies is because, you know, they, they care about these children more than their own lives. A lot of times I feel like kind of similarly in instances where we have moms that are diagnosed during pregnancy with like cancer who are, you know, declining treatment until they get to a gestation where it'd be safe to deliver baby. And I feel like it's kind of very similar that they are like, I'm not going to risk anything that could happen to my baby. So if it's if I'm not dying, I will be miserable kind of thing and take these chances versus trying any of these kind of, I don't want to say, necessarily say like experimental treatments. I mean, that that's kind of where we're at. Like everything has just been a guess right from the get-go. And that's why, you know, we're doing less ventilator stuff with COVID and everything. Or we're waiting longer to do certain interventions than when we did initially. And then- Exactly. So I I feel like that's where we're kind of at with with these moms is, you know, they don't want to do anything that's going to put their babies at risk, regardless of until maybe they get either they recover or it starts to deteriorate more, I guess. Although what I feel like consensus, and this is just kind of from hearing like other OB nurses, you know, perspective, is I feel like we're seeing a lot more complications more postpartum than we necessarily are, you know, during the pregnancy. Ooh, talk about that. I want to know. So like every once in a while, like you, you get, obviously we've got lots of running theories about, you know, we talk about like the clotting issues, like, is this increasing why we have more intrauterine fetal demises going on? Like, are we having clots in the placenta that's cutting off blood and oxygen and nutrients to baby? Like, are we seeing more preterm deliveries related to that? But I feel like in general, we've kind of seen an uptick in like preeclampsia and not just like during pregnancy, but like postpartum preeclampsia readmits a lot more postpartum hemorrhaging going on. So I feel like we've been seeing more more complications with like the postpartum side. Were they patients who had tested positive for COVID? Yeah. Oh. So that's what's like kind of interesting, like completely asymptomatic, like during pregnancy, but then we're, you know, seeing these issues after they deliver. Which is kind of similar to sort of, you know, when we see stuff in the ER with people who've recovered and then they come in and now they have like a PE going on or DVTs and everything. And it's, it's you know, after they've quote unquote recovered. So absolutely, there's, there's a whole side with pregnancy. Yeah, that, I mean, it makes sense. You know, if you had it early on, you know, maybe in the pregnancy and now you've recovered, quote unquote, right? to have those those complications. Yeah, you must be seeing some stuff that is just like, huh. I think it's it's like, is it, you know, is it causation, correlation? Like, what is science going to say about this 10 years from now? So it's it's been interesting for sure. Now, I mean, I know that they've been also, there have been the controversy with the vaccines coming out too and whether or not they were safe for pregnant women. Yeah. 
And I mean, don't, don't take a stance. If you, obviously I'm not going to force you to be like, (laughs) do this and that. Anybody who follows me on Twitter knows where I stand with things. And, you know, I'm a big proponent. Most of us are in healthcare. You get a few dum-dums that are anti-vax that slip through the cracks, but most of us pro-science, pro-vaccines, but a lot of us also, you know, it is your choice at the end of the day as a person to, to get vaccinated or not. And I understand if you're pregnant, how, like you said, you are concerned about what are the long-term effects beyond yourself and, you know, more so for your baby. So I get how there's hesitancy with right now, you know, getting vaccinated and I do find it interesting because um, I'm still, you know, friends with a lot of OBGYNs that I've worked with over, you know, the course of my career. And it's interesting the stance that certain OBGYNs will take in in areas like Arizona where COVID was like obviously really, really bad. Whereas to some of these smaller hospitals in the Midwest where like it, it hasn't been as bad. So it's it's interesting hearing different perspectives from medical professionals, what their opinion is. I'm always a big believer in like, do the research. I 100% understand like the hesitancy, but I'm like, we don't know the long-term effects of COVID. And are we starting to see it a year out from some of these people who've... Like COVID long, you know, like people who have recovered. (laughs) Long COVID is now a term that people are talking about, you know, like long COVID symptoms or long COVID whatever. And it's just like, so there's so much more, like you said, there's so much more that we don't know about COVID. And then there's so much more that, you know, everyone's like, but you don't know about vaccines. Well, you know, when they first rolled out the polio vaccine, they didn't know what would happen then either. So, I mean, like. I've always felt that way. Like I was stoked when I got my email telling me that I could get my COVID vaccine. I was like, heck yeah. It was the best Christmas present. Like it (laughs) seriously was. I got mine on my first dose on the 23rd. I was stoked. And everyone was like, you're okay with just being a guinea pig. And I'm like, heck yeah, I am. Cause like, I, cause I'm like, can you imagine how much scarier it must've been when they were rolling out the polio vaccine? And there was so much less we knew about science back then. I'm like, those people were pioneers and I am happy to be a pioneer. If like, obviously I'm not like trying to sign up to die or anything, but like, no, but at the same time, you know, (laughs) we're, we're trusting the science. But if I do and people learn from this, like I'm down for that. Yeah. I mean, you know, in the event that, you know, something catastrophic happened, at least, you know, learn from it. Right. Dear God, I hope so. But. And I think again, too, because like, I'm like, I don't have kids. Like if something happens to me, like I'm not really leaving. It's still sad. It's sad anytime anybody dies. So like, I understand more people's hesitancy when they're like, okay, like I've got kids. Like what happens if something happens to me? Or like, what happens if something happens to them? But like, for me, I'm like, this is a no brainer. Like, where do I sign up? And I mean, we, we both have, you know, families that are at risk. Um, and, and my justification also is that at that point, you know, I had been constantly exposed to COVID for over a year, which means that I could never safely see my family unless I knew I could have a safeguard in place for me. So it was a no brainer. I was like, the only way I could safely see my family is to get vaccinated for me, for me. Parents are getting older. I wasn't ready to be like, nope, not going to see you and like risk you dying before I ever see you again. Like, and it's just, it was, it was a no brainer. And I mean, you, if somebody's out there listening and, and they're like, well, you know, these are two people who 
blah, 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 microchip. Uh, fine. <laughs> you, you can have that opinion. That's fine. I'm totally fine with being microchip. They've already got my face on my phone. <laughs> Listen, I keep having animal encounters ever since I've like, I've been vaccinated. So maybe I have a superpower. So I'm just saying, oh, maybe I'm you get vaccinated and end up finding a horse on a hill randomly. Uh, it's a whole thing. <laughs> but, I, you know, and I, like I said, I get the hesitancy more so from the pregnant perspective than I do maybe some other populations that are more hesitant. I totally understand it with pregnancy and why, you know, a lot of women have had very in-depth conversations with their OBGYNs before considering it. So to those people, that's exactly what you should be doing. You should be talking to the people you trust. Talk to your provider, read the research. And that's what I did. So my, my sister has had four losses and is currently pregnant with her fifth. You know, she trusts my opinion a lot. She asked me all of her OB related questions. Obviously, this is the first pregnancy since, you know, COVID. And she's like, I don't know what to do. And I was like, I cannot give you that answer. That's 100% not my place to do that. I can like send you some articles to read, but that's like something for you and your husband to discuss together and talk to your provider. I'm like, I'm going to be in a catch 22 where, you know, if, if you have another loss and you got it, is it because of that? Or if you have another loss and you didn't get it, is it because of that? And I was like, that's a position I can't be in as your sister. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I mean, a lot of people turn to healthcare providers right now as, you know, a way of deciphering what's real from what's not. And I'm totally fine with that role because that's basically what happens when you start working in healthcare is you become that person within your family and group of friends. But like in this role with COVID, I've kind of also told people, I said, look, I'm learning just at the same speed as you are about a lot of this stuff. So I'm trying to do my best and go to the people that I trust to help me out with figuring out stuff. So if I'm doing that in my own way to understand it, then absolutely you should read the articles and do the same sort of stuff. But, uh, you know, COVID is crazy. I sometimes think to myself in terms of what are going to be the lasting things for healthcare that has impacted. I know, you know, with the AIDS pandemic, when that happened, people really didn't always use gloves when doing procedures in terms of like IVs and stuff. So I wonder like what's going to be the shift across healthcare. And I think, I think surgical masks are going to be something we all have to get used to. I was just talking to my coworker about this the other day. I was like, I'm pretty sure masks are now going to just be standard PPE for us. Yep. I think so. I think, you know, I think that's going to be something that it's just going to be like when you get to work, you put a mask on. I'm not so sure from a patient perspective, if that's going to also be something it may or may not be, but but as a healthcare worker on our side, I, I think that's going to be our future for sure. I don't think we'll be needing necessarily the riot gear face shields as much. <laughs> Although they are pretty intense. What some people get, I know they I have, are... I just have goggles guys. I, I, the face shields hurt my head too much. They hurt my forehead. I am a goggle and masker as well. Yeah, I can't do the face shields. I try and then I'll look down to try and look for something and it bounces back up and it's oh, it's just ridiculous. But yeah, I think that's that'll be definitely something that switches up with healthcare. I know a lot of people have left the bedside. I don't know if you've seen a mass exodus in terms of people in your realm, but I've seen a lot of people leave the bedside or go back to school to start doing stuff for healthcare policy um, as a probably, I don't know if COVID is the direct catalyst for it, but I'm sure it's one of the thing reasons why they want to go back to school. 
but I have been seeing more people either leave their specialty or just completely drop out of bedside nursing. I was going to say, I feel, I mean, I feel like the burnout was, was really real with last year in general, but also just, I saw a lot of nurses leaving the bedside because of, because of fear again, which is understandable. I mean, COVID, COVID is a beast and I don't think it was, I mean, I never expected to be living through a pandemic in my lifetime. Well, and then there was also the side too, that I saw a lot of people having to Uh, go per diem because suddenly they lost childcare in terms of having to become teachers or work from home or something, you know, with everything that happened then it was like, they, they can no longer work full-time hours and also have to do more and more things uh, on the home front. So I, I definitely saw people having to dropped a per diem or, you know, a PRN sort of role. Um, and then eventually some of them have had to actually leave. Hence why, you know, a few of the reasons why travel nursing kind of started to boom is because, well, partly because of there that. Was a need. There was such a big need. Yeah. And there still is. I mean, honestly, a lot of people are saying, oh, the COVID rates are, are drying up, which, yeah, that's going to go up and down. And that's honestly, that's how it's going to be from here on out. There's going to be surges in different spots and everything associated with that will probably bring travel nurses in. But for the most part, it's just, it's going to be like that. <laughs> it's yeah. just going to be like that, as they say. But I I just, it's interesting how fast things have changed and how fast we've all had to adapt to it. And you talked about burnout. So I guess we can lead into sort of ending it a little bit with what are you doing? Like, what is Sybil doing to take care of herself when she's not at work, because it is so hard. I think it's harder more than ever for anybody to not talk about COVID, but especially with healthcare providers in the last year, I feel like that's what our whole life's been. (laughs) That's what our whole life's been. And it's, and, and as I love my family and friends so much in this last year and a half, like they have stepped up in so many big ways, but in inevitably a lot of your conversations somewhat turned into talking about COVID. Not so much anymore because, uh, you know, things are starting to sort of reemerge and, you know, we're, we're getting into moving into a different kind of normal now. (laughs) Exactly. We're getting into like a, a different landscape in front of us. And, and that's awesome. But, you know, for the past, I would say year and a half or so, it's just a lot of conversation I've had, even on my days off somehow involves COVID. Well, and I'm sure too, like family and friends that don't work in healthcare, we're probably bringing it up and asking like, well, what's going on in the hospitals? Like, how serious do you think we need to be taking this? Because um, I got a lot of that just, you know, they're they're looking to, quote unquote, the experts. And I was like, um, right now, none of us are experts. On this. Yeah, for real. We don't know what's <laughs> going on. But what, do you, what did you do? Like, what do you, what were your support things? Like, what are the things that, you know, you've had to kind of either change or or adapt to in order to be like, okay, how do I connect back to like, not work Sybil? I feel very fortunate that at least so like, I was still having adult interaction. So I feel like I did not get hit as hard as like some of those people that were truly like stuck at home for weeks at a time. So like, I'm grateful for my job that that deemed me essential that allowed me to still be having conversations with people and stuff like that. So that I wasn't just like cooped up in my house. But I just started looking for like new hobbies. I wouldn't even call them hobbies. I just like learned how to teach myself things. I realized like when the shutdown happened that I'm a much more like busybody than I like to think that I am. (laughs) 
And so like, I, I consider myself a pretty lazy person, but when I look at my schedule, I'm like, no, you're like, you're pretty busy doing stuff all the time. So it was really weird suddenly having this free time and not really knowing what to do with myself and not being able to go anywhere and do things because like, I really enjoy traveling and like being able to go out. So honestly, like learning how to do like home repair stuff was really exciting for me. I got myself some power tools and learned how to use those last year. Step aside, Chip and Joanna Gaines. Here comes Sybil. For real. My husband tried. It was not his jam. So then it had to become my jam because our house was in shambles. Um, (laughs) It was bad. He he had a buddy and he's like, yeah, we're going to do this. And I came home and I was like, what did you guys think you were doing? I mean, I don't think it helped that they were also having beer because that's a staple in Wisconsin. I mean... That and apparently beer cheese soup. I didn't know what the hell beer cheese soup was until last week. I mean, I'm assuming it's just, it's beer cheese. that You live in Wisconsin. You don't know what it is. Okay, I'm not a real Wisconsinite, Kim. I like football and that's about it. Called out. (laughs) Called out. (laughs) What are your thoughts on Aaron Rodgers? Oh, I've got some strong opinions there. (laughs) You need to be Um, off mic. I'll leave it. I'll leave it at, I told my husband, I was like, He's not going to live forever. So if he's going to be a diva right now, maybe it's time we move on. (laughs) And that's all. And that's that on that for everybody wondering. But I mean, I loved him dearly, but he's being, he's being a little Brett Favre right now. (laughs) I don't know, man. Maybe it's that Wisconsin landscape. Who knows? Maybe. Why don't you get Jordan Rogers? Just, (laughs) just grab him from Jojo. Oh, they're so cute together though. (laughs) I'm just glad they're still together. I have a funny story about that. I knew how that season ended before because all of the Packer wives were talking about it at preseason practice. Oh my gosh. I like, I like heard the tea while I was watching preseason practice. <laughs> my only connection with that is that JoJo's brother that I guess wasn't there during the hometown okay, was a resident at one of the hospitals I worked at. And... I mentioned to somebody that uh, at that hospital that like, yeah, you know, I watch The Bachelor and stuff because it's like my family's show. And uh, they said, oh, well, do you know Dr. So-and-so was, uh, is JoJo's brother? And I was like, what? So I don't know if that's actually true. But I also, this in the world of nursing, I work with a nurse that uh, was on the, no, road rules. She was on road rules. Um, I had an anesthesiologist back in Arizona who was on Survivor. See, we have connections to reality TV, guys. That's going to be a whole separate episode where we just talk about the tea. But okay, so going back to self-care, this is this is like, you know, it's a phrase that all of us have been throwing out in the last year or so. I mean, I, I do want to kind of, you know, put a little bow, I guess, on this with, you know, it, it's, it is so important. I feel like in this last year, it's really been highlighted uh, how important it is, but it also is important going forward, you know, with people kind of having that, new lease on life, their little golden ticket of a, you know, their vaccine card, if you will, and slowly getting back out into things. I feel like people need to just give themselves a little bit of forgiveness. If you don't like the things that you thought you did before, if all of a sudden, you know, you're just kind of feeling a little bit lost in terms of what do I do now? You know, coming back out into experiencing things in the outside world, maybe a little bit more safely. One of my friends the other day was talking about how She's a person that loves live music. She loves concerts. She loves going to festivals. And she's like, I can't even think about it right now. And I get emails from all these festivals that are like, we missed you. We're coming back in September. And she's just like, the thought of that is so overwhelming to me. 
And I was just like, well, maybe just see, you know, don't go, you know, don't obviously don't like throw yourself into a situation that you're not comfortable with. Exactly. But maybe go to like a live music show that's all outside or something and just ease back into it because it is so important to still have something to connect to outside of being locked in your house in a work from home atmosphere. Cause a lot of people literally have only worked from home for like a year and a half. And that is bonkers to me to think about, you know, you talked about it before about how we are fortunate that we still had a routine. We still got our scrubs on, you know, did our commute to work, worked, were able to come home, you know, and have that disconnect between here's my house, here's where I live, and then here's where I work. And it's still, you know, there's just still a little Separate. sense of routine. Yeah. Whereas other people have just been like in their At house. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And their routine has changed completely. So, I mean, I think for healthcare providers, definitely having our self-care mechanisms have helped us to get to this point. And now it's like, okay, well, what happens now? It reminds me of like Finding Nemo when they get finally out of the aquarium. I'm like, they're all bobbing in the water and they're like, what do we do? (laughs) What now? Like, like, it's like, okay, but, but what now, you know? And I don't know with, with nursing, I feel like I, I get a little worried. I've been a little, I've been worried about a lot of people as in the profession in general, like the mental health fallout. I've been so worried about that because I felt the cracks. I went to a therapist. I like actually went to a therapist because I was like, I don't feel mentally like myself. I don't, I can't explain why. And going to therapy, it's a definitely a learning process in terms of finding a therapist that works. And I'm still on the hunt for one, but I mean, it's the first step towards being like, okay, like probably did affect me. And there's probably other stuff that's being drudged up through this. So maybe it's time that I actually talk to somebody about it. So, you know, why don't I go down that route? And I feel like a lot of people have probably thought about it. I know for nurses, you get EAP, but I have a whole thing against that. (laughs) I, I, on my soapbox, employee assistance programs are awesome in theory, not in actuality. <laughs> I feel like there's like something behind the scenes that makes it not so great. So uh, that's my own personal hang up about EAP, but it's something I probably should work through. But it is true. You know, we need to have something in place. You got to like disconnect from this. I agree. Like I, I talked to a lot of friends So I had a lot of friends who did end up working from home and stuff like that, or, you know, we're just losing jobs because, you know, small business is closing down and stuff like that. And I'm a big believer in therapy. I think it is always important to be able to like bounce what's going off in your head on someone else and not just being left to try and counsel yourself. Because that's the thing. You only get one perspective when you're doing that. (laughs) It's a pretty one-sided conversation. pretty one-sided conversation. (laughs) So I was encouraging them to do that because I had a lot of friends who were dealing with like anxiety and depression and mental health issues. And I was like, this year has been rough for people who who have had stability still going on. I'm just like you were saying, I'm like, I didn't feel like myself last year. I know last year was rough on my marriage. And I'm like, so even for people who who have like good coping mechanisms in place for people who don't have history of anxiety and depression last year was incredibly rough. So when you already have a history of that, like, why did you think it wasn't going to be affected? I'm like, people who had all kinds of 
more normalcy last year were still severely affected by it. So I was like, you should get help for that. Like, it's completely normal to be feeling this way. There's nothing wrong with it. There's veteran nurses I've worked with who I've seen the cracks, you know, that would call me at 1am because I'm up, you're up, let's talk. And sometimes it was about COVID and sometimes it wasn't. And that was okay. And it's still okay. I still sometimes get those messages from people and it's always going to be fine. If I'm up and you're up, let's talk. But, but it is, it's just, it's the, it's the people that, you know, that I worry about because it's like, they think that they have to be so strong and it's like, it's okay to say that you're not doing okay. It's totally okay to be like, and it doesn't have to be because of COVID. It's it's this whole stress of this last year or so has just made everybody on edge in some way, shape, or form. And you can link it back to just being in that state. And you don't necessarily have to have a direct interaction with having like something happen because of COVID specifically. But it just made it turned the world upside down. Exactly. The whole entire year and a half or so has just been chaos. It's been constantly in flux. There's been no routine for anybody. And you can't necessarily assume that you're going to be okay living in a constant state of uncertainty. Like that's not going to happen. I was telling somebody, I was like, it's like you're treading water in the middle of a tsunami. Like you're going to go underneath (laughs) a few times. Yeah. Yeah. And you have to be willing to be like, when you see help or, or if help is like being offered to you to like reach out and like hold on to it. And I think that's what I feel like hopefully people are starting to do. I mean, I've seen a lot more people that said they're taking breaks, you know, they're going on like a week or two or even a few months. Some people have been like, I I can't work bedside right now. And they've just been like, I need to take a break. And they do. And it's like, yeah, because your investment in yourself is going to go longer than working at a job that's constantly like making you feel this way. Like you got to recharge. And if you're in a position where you can take that time off and be paid for it, awesome. But sometimes you just got to take the break and you just got to be like, you know what? Money comes and goes, but I need to be here. So if you need to do it, do it. But to really super end it, can you tell us about why you're famous, Sybil? <laughs> so this was initially why Kim and I were going to talk three years ago. Stop it. Um, <laughs> And then uh, we're both nurses, so life happens. So, no, a couple years back, I was working at a um, smaller hospital, which, funny story, I'm actually back at that hospital right now. Oh, your fam. Yeah, so it's it's kind of great to be back with them again. And this, this story went kind of national, so it's okay for me to share the bits and information. Um, but I had a patient... Yeah, if you still have the link, like I'll put it in the show notes. I mean, I have lots of different links of where it, it went like international. I yeah, mean, they were... you were in people for this, I think, right? <laughs> well, I wasn't. They, <laughs> they said it was a doctor, but they corrected it to nurses. Uh, I'm like, don't get me wrong. Our physicians are phenomenal and I love my OBGYNs, but like give credit to nurses where it's due because we, we do a lot of work. There's a little bit MacGyvering going on with some of the (laughs) stuff you come up with. It it wasn't. So this was the other reason why I had some issue and I was like, oh, this is where, you know, be careful about listening to what the media tells you sometimes. (laughs) I am not an inventor. I wish I could take credit for this, but no, there are. Somebody showed you. Yes. No, I have worked with phenomenal lactation nurses over the years. So to make a quick story, little or long story. No, make it as long as you need to. (laughs) So a couple years back, I was at a small hospital and I had a pregnant patient who came in um, with elevated blood pressures. 
And anytime we have that, we worry for preeclampsia. So we had done lab work on her that all came back normal. But because her blood pressures were higher and she was already fairly dilated, they just um, decided to augment her labor to try and get her to deliver. Because a lot of times if we're we're leaning towards preeclampsia, typically we say the, the cure is delivery. So she had some high blood pressures. We ended up getting an epidural, which a lot of times will cause the blood pressure to get lower. So the physician had, we had held off on giving any IV medications for her blood pressure just to see if they would go down with the use of the epidural. And they did for a brief time, but then they still kind of persisted in kind of mid-range. So we gave her some labetalol. And then she went really rapidly from five centimeters to nine centimeters. So we went ahead and we're looking at those blood pressures again and they were really high. And the doctor's like, you know, it could be just because she's transitioning. The epidural's not working that great. Let's just let's just try and get her delivered. So I went in the room to start some Pitocin on her. And Pitocin is a synthetic version of the hormone that your body is normally producing to give contractions. So we will titrate that to try and give either like stronger or more frequent contractions to reduce the time to delivery. And right as I was getting it started, my patient was like, my hand feels weird. And then she just started seizing. So yeah, I was, you know, I've taken care of a lot of preeclamptic patients. Um, This was my very first seizure. And of course, it happened at a little tiny hospital where we don't have as many resources around. So, you know, we we called the rapid response just so we'd have more people in there and everything and waited. It was probably, oh man, probably like a good two, three minute seizure that she had. It was pretty lengthy. It was pretty lengthy. It was like totally grand mal seizure. So so then the doctor checked her again and she was only nine centimeters. And she's like, you know, this is her first baby. Even if we get to 10 centimeters, like what is pushing going to do to her blood pressures? And if she's already seized once, that moves you into the eclamptic category. So that's what, you know, knocks preeclampsia into eclampsia is when you're actually having those seizures. How much I remember. Yeah. <laughs> yep. So um, we decided to go for a primary C-section. And um, so we like started some magnesium beforehand to, to help reduce that seizure threshold. And it ended up being a really good call because even when we moved to the operating room and, you know, we were going pretty quickly, she had another seizure as soon as we moved her over to the operating table. So the plan, regardless, because like I said, smaller hospital was that they were going to move her to the ICU after she delivered just because now she'd had two seizures and they wanted her to potentially be on some medications that we just wouldn't typically be doing in labor and delivery. And it was their first baby and they had had a birth plan of, you know, wanting to do that skin to skin right away, which is so beneficial for newborns. And they had really wanted to do breastfeeding. So baby was born and she was doing pretty great, actually. Um, She was having a little bit of tachypnea, which isn't super, super uncommon right after baby's born. And so that's why we like that skin to skin, because a lot of times it'll help kind of just regulate their breathing, their temperature, their heart rate and everything like that. So dad was down for doing that. So, you know, mom was getting worked on. I had brought baby back to the nursery to be with dad and start doing that skin to skin right away. And then anytime that we have concerns, like for the baby and stuff like that, a lot of times we'll do a blood sugar just to kind of check to see if there's something going on. And her blood sugar was running a little bit on the lower side. So we wanted to get some nutrition in her. And, you know, typically I would have no problem like just latching a baby onto mom and holding them in place there or like hand expressing mom and getting that colostrum. But my patient wasn't exactly stable enough at the time for me to feel comfortable doing that. Like I couldn't leave the baby alone and I didn't want to try putting the baby on her chest in case she ended up having another seizure. 
So I talked to dad and was like, what are your thoughts on doing a little bit of formula supplementation just so we can make sure her blood sugar stays stabilized? And he was okay with that. But I, I really wanted to just try and honor their birth plan as much as I could. So we have this really great system called a supplemental nursing system that moms with premature babies that are like learning to latch after having been on IVs for a long time, or moms who have like inverted or flat nipples, or for mothers who have history of like mastectomies, but still want that bonding experience of breastfeeding with their baby, we can use the supplemental nursing system to to kind of do that. So this dad was super awesome. And it was one of the greatest nights of my life. He let me put the supplemental nursing system on him. So that way he could essentially mimic breastfeeding for his baby for the first time. That's pretty rad. It was so cool, man. Like he was just, he was a really he was cool like down dad. For it. He's like, absolutely. He was like, I don't know what's going on with my wife, but like, I know I want to honor what her wishes were as much as I could. And that's just his attitude. He was like, if it's good for the baby, if it's what my wife would have wanted, like, let's do whatever we need to do. So they're super great family. Like I, I still love them to death. We're still friends and everything. So yeah, so a lot of people kind of gave me flack and they're like, you know, you could have just, you know, did a finger feed or you didn't have to use like the nipple shield and all of that stuff. Or why couldn't you have just done a bottle if you're doing formula anyways? And I'm like, you know, the importance of this is that a nipple shield is a much softer nipple than what we would have on a bottle. And that positioning helps baby get used to that positioning for breastfeeding for when she eventually transferred to mom and was able to try and start learning how to nurse. So like there were a lot of benefits to it besides, you know, other than just knocking the fact that, well, you were giving her formula anyways. So is that the flack that you got? I got a lot. Well, I mean, I feel bad. So the poor dad got a lot more flack. There was a whole bunch of like emasculation stuff going on around the internet But a lot of people were like, there were a lot of other ways you could have supplemented this baby. Like you didn't need to be weird about it. And I was like, it wasn't like being weird. It was what (laughs) I offered it. I didn't push it on anybody. And they were down for it because they understood the benefits of being able to do it that way. (laughs) So, so there's like, okay. So the thing was that like you do this and then how does it get from just like something you do to making international news? (laughs) Well, so of course, a lot. Um, so we eventually brought the the grandparents in. Um, and of course, you know, grandma sees her son in law holding the baby and doing this supplemental nursing system. And she laughed because she knew him. And she's like, of course, you would. Um, you would do this. So you know, they took pictures to document. So that way, when mom woke up, they'd be able to show that like, hey, you know, even though you weren't here, we still got to do these really important first things with her after she was born to try and like to represent what your wishes were and what we would have wanted to do with you had you not been sick at the time, you know? And so he had like posted a photo of it on his Facebook um, talking about him breastfeeding the baby for the first time. And it just, it blew up. Like it got shared so many times across Facebook and then got started getting picked up by like a whole bunch of different news outlets I had shared it with their permission just because like, I thought it was really cool. I'm like, this is a dad stepping up when his wife was in a position where she wasn't able to do things the way she wanted to. And like, I'm like, this is what dads are supposed to do. Like, this is how you can be a partner in what your wife's wishes are. Because a lot of people think, you know, dads don't have a role in breastfeeding. I mean, this obviously was taking it like a step further. But I'm like, just because you're not the one feeding your baby, like you should still be there supporting your wife. You should be there bringing her snacks. You should be bringing her water because breastfeeding takes a lot out of you. 
So I'm like, men still play a role or partners in general can still play a role even if they're not the one actually feeding the baby. So I was just like really proud of him for stepping up and doing this. And I remember getting a call from my job the next day and I was like a little paranoid. I was was so paranoid. I was like, oh, I I just totally crossed like HIPAA lines, even though like it, I have explicitly from them that it was fine to share and everything. But I was like, oh, I just crossed some boundaries here. But the local news station, like our version of, I think it's ABC, it was W Bay TV here in Green Bay, they wanted to do a story on it. And they were like, can you come up tomorrow for an interview? (laughs) Oh my gosh, that throws you for a loop. You're like, I thought I was fired, but now I'm going to be interviewed. I'm like, this is why I work night shifts so that I don't ever have to see management. And now they're calling me at home. (laughs) No, my management is phenomenal there. But I was I was really nervous. I'm like, yeah, this might have crossed the line a little bit. But no, so I came up the next day and um, the news station interviewed the family and I, and then it kind of got picked up by all, that's why I'm thinking it's ABC. So like it was local here, but then a whole bunch of other like ABC networks like throughout, because I had, you know, people from Arizona that were like sending me a picture. They were like, Sybil, I saw you on the news today. And my friends down in um, Louisiana, like they were sending it to me. And then, you know, the family and I stayed in touch and they were like, getting interviewed by places in Australia. I had a news station in England ask me about the... And I'm like, I promise you, like, this is something that has existed. That's where I was like, really, I was like, I did not make this up. This is not... I'm not an inventor. Like, please give credit where credit is due. I am not the first person in the world to use a supplemental nursing system. I give credit to all of the wonderful lactation nurses that like taught me this was a thing I could even do with patients when babies didn't want to like nurse or anything. So no, the technology has been there. I just got to kind of like use it in a creative and unique situation. <laughs> you gave it, a, you gave it a, a spotlight. <laughs> Which is great though. I was like really excited. I had a couple um, adoptive moms who like messaged me on Facebook that were asking like where they could get this stuff because they're like, you know, I'm going to be adopting a baby and like I've had a mastectomy before, but I'd still really like to get that like bonding experience because because it really is. It's truly so much bonding. It's more than just like a nutrition aspect for babies. So it was just like really great that, you know, maybe some places hadn't heard of these things or like, you know, didn't offer these things. And it gives moms, you know, that are coming into the hospital, like, is this something that we can try and like see if this works for me? Instead of, you know, having to kind of like, I don't want to say give up on their dreams, but like meet some barriers in trying to accomplish their breastfeeding goals and stuff like that. So it was just really awesome to like have, have more information going out about it. (laughs) You're like, and now I could, I could clear the air like a few years later. Yes. Oh my gosh. Like, no, I never told them that I invented this. Like, I still get a little cringy when I watch that interview because they're like using a device that the nurse invented. And I was like, I did not invent this. Like, take that back. I sound like a jerk. <laughs> Listen, we won't post it then. We won't. Maybe. I don't know. I'll, I'll send it to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really, it's really cool. It's, it's a cool It's story. really cool that he, yeah, that the dad was so on board with it. It's awesome too to hear that you guys, you know, still maintain, stay in touch. That's, that's awesome too. That's something that I don't get to see too often per se, uh, working emergency. Although... I have read a few places somewhere that they're trying to reunite some people with their healthcare teams. Yeah. Like during like traumatic stuff. So that's pretty cool. I I think that's awesome part in healthcare, especially now that, you know, there's more social media, it goes both ways where sometimes you get patients that uh, 
become a little bit too infatuated with nurses <laughs> and gets into some criminal territory. And then it goes the other way too, where you can have these awesome relationships between your patients who sometimes become more than that in terms of becoming a friend or, you know, something to that effect. And that's awesome too. So that's so cool. I'm glad that that, I I remember reading it and I was like, Oh, I got to have her on the podcast. And, you know, I just didn't want to, you know, put you under pressure then just wait, we'll wait three years. Bring it back up. (laughs) No, it was just really cool. And like, I mean, even if it, I mean, obviously I feel really honored that it was like me and everything because, but like my bigger thing with that is I'm like, this just shows like, like what we do as nurses really can truly make a difference for people. I don't know about you, but I know like more often than not, like patients remember their doctors and stuff and not always their nurses, but like we really can make such a huge impact because we really are there at the bedside with the patient, you know, doing things with them. So I just really liked like the spotlight and recognition that nurses could have with that. I'm like, I didn't need my name out there or anything, but like, just know your nurses really are trying to do things for you and they're trying to listen to you. Right. And, you know, trying to be your voice in terms of being an intermediate sometimes between doctors and providers and what's going on. Sybil, is there anything you want to say or promote? I just want to say thank you for, I just want to say thank you for having me on here. It's a super big honor and it's been great getting to catch up a little bit. It is. (laughs) It's an honor my ass. (laughs) No, it is. Like, I, like, I don't know. We went to nursing school with a whole bunch of people. I mean, like, it's just really cool that, you know, you're staying in touch with us and like wanting to ask us about our specialties. And I just, I think it's really cool that you, you know, want to share the spotlight of nursing. (laughs) I think that, uh, you know, when I first started this podcast, it was for a few different reasons. But now I think with the pandemic and everything, I'm just like, let's let me try and like restart this in a different way where you can see maybe or hear nurses just talking to each other, shooting the shit. But also just like, what does nursing do? Like what what goes beyond what you see? And I think that has been more highlighted in this last year and a half. Just the role of nursing and how I think some people still think of nurses as kind of being silent in the background. And that has totally shifted. There's a reason why, you know, we do what we do and the way that we approach things. And, you know, there's a lot of knowledge behind what nurses do. And there's so many different specialties that I interact with or I hear about that I'm like, that sounds awesome. How, you know, what does that do? Like, I don't, the world of interventional radiology That seems pretty cool. You get to like look at vessels as they're doing stuff. Super cool specialty. Not so happy though that one of my friends from a previous contract moved from her ER to IR. What a traitor. That's what people told me though when I started also working postpartum. We were like my original L&D unit. That was my first job and it was just labor delivery. They were like, you're working postpartum and you like it. (laughs) They're like, that's the betrayal. I was like, I I didn't expect to, but I do. But that's because so much teaching goes on. And like I said, I've got that wannabe teacher background. <laughs> I, You know it though, but you do it with nursing. You do it in healthcare. You're teaching people a lot of stuff. Different type of teaching. Different ways, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Still super important. Sybil, you're going to be back. Do okay. you know that? You're going to be back at be some point. I would be happy to. Like I Maybe said, in I another three years. 
Oh, <laughs> uh, maybe after we figure out what's going on with Aaron Rodgers too. There uh, we go. We'll have you on for some hot Football takes. Football season. <laughs> exactly. No, but this was awesome. Thanks for joining me. I hope anybody who's listening out there, you know, you get a little bit of perspective of the world of labor and delivery. If you've always thought about it and you're like, Oh, I wonder what that's about. Maybe this gives you a little insight. And if you're still looking for more insight, but you don't necessarily know where to go, uh, you can email me. My email is peoplearewildpod at gmail.com. And I can go ahead and turn and ask Sybil if you would like. You can also catch Sybil doing awesome things in Wisconsin for the babies and the moms. So if you're in Wisconsin, Maybe she'll be your nurse one day. Maybe I don't I'm know. Your nurse. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Be like, I heard you on a podcast. Are you the same Sybil? That was another cool. one. And they're like, no, that's not me. <laughs> <laughs> no, this is, this is awesome. And if you're a Sun Devil listening out there, go Sun Devils. Go Sun Devils. <laughs> if you're a wildcat, turn this off. Thank you again, Sybil. Bye.